message outline that says deception that's unmasked. We're in our series on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. This is the 13th sermon as we go through here and today we're going to come to one of the most difficult texts in all of the Bible. So got to have your thinking caps on and you'll have to listen very carefully because this one's uh, a little challenging, uh, probably as much for me as for anybody. Um, but let's turn to uh, our text. You want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please listen carefully as this is a word of God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning and we find that once again, we still need to learn a lot about what it means to love the truth. We know we're susceptible to lies and deception and delusions, that we're not as faithful to your word as you want us to be. So Lord, once again, open our eyes and our ears, enable us to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Use it to help us to know and love the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do this for each of us this morning in his name and for his glory. Amen. You know, I thought about just sort of opening it up, figuring there are so many viewpoints on this text that just sort of let everybody say whatever they want and at some point I'll pray and we'll go home. But I said, that's probably not what you're paying me to do. Um, so, it was really hard. This is an incredibly difficult text, and 
I was delighted. I got an email just the other day uh, from uh, Dan Wallace, and uh, he's a New Testament scholar, and he was responding to a whole slew of emails and YouTube videos and letters, all dealing with the topic of, is Obama the Antichrist? And so Dr. Wallace wrote this long collective response to these people, extensively quoting from the scriptures and definitively showing that this is not the case. And he was far more gracious than I would have been. He didn't use the word stupid or moron or idiot. He didn't even use any negative phrases about the people asking this question, as I did in an email to a friend recently asking him if he was a selfish, non-contributing, life-sucking, grace-lacking, painfully-dying loser. (laughs) Dr. Wallace didn't say anything like that. What he did say after a long biblical tour of all those passages dealing with the Antichrist was this. But is he, Obama, the Antichrist, in the least, the linguistic torturing required to make the biblical evidence say this is beyond the pale of reason and perhaps sanity. That's so much more gracious. But it brought the point to me that we live in a day and an age when far too many Christians learn their doctrine from Christian novels and from American popular culture. This is a really sad situation because Christians are supposed to learn their doctrine from the pages of Scripture. And one doctrine where far too much Christian thinking is informed by bad fiction and low culture, as opposed to the scriptures, is this doctrine of the Antichrist. And in those circles where Christians are especially interested in Bible prophecy and in the relationship between current events and end times, it's common to hear people engaging in speculation about this dreaded archenemy of Jesus. Is the Antichrist already alive? How will he deceive Israel into making a peace treaty with the nations of a revived Roman Empire? Will Christians be around to face this dreaded foe, or will they be removed from the earth by a rapture before the seven-year tribulation begins, leaving only those left behind to face the wrath of the Antichrist? What is the mark of the beast, and is it tied to some current technology? And it goes on and on, so on and so forth, until I want to gag and throw up. Now, much of this speculation is promoted by those who believe in dispensational premillennialism. Two big words. But that is the system of understanding the end times that is set forth in the poorly written but hugely successful left-behind novels written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And sadly, the dispensational approach to prophecy in general and the doctrine of the Antichrist in particular, I think, has drifted far away from the teaching of Scripture. Now, there are four primary places in Scripture which deal with the subject of the Antichrist. Obviously, the book of Revelation, which we'll begin to go through next month. And uh, we're going to be there for a while. Uh, Second, the book of Daniel, which we went through last spring. Third, the epistles of John, which is the only place that the word antichrist is used, and we went through those last year. 
And then finally, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is our text for this morning. And because this text is easily one of the most difficult and hard to understand texts in all the Bible, it'd be really easy just to say it's too hard and skip over it. In fact, in my research, I found a number of uh, other preachers and commentators who did just that. They said, this text was really hard, and let's skip on and go to the next passage. But as one who's committed to uh, expository preaching through books of the Bible, it's not an option for me. I think you have to deal with the hard texts. A good friend of mine who's a PCA pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, he wrote me on Facebook to suggest I title this sermon and the upcoming series on Revelation. I'm confused about this, and so now I'm going to teach it to you. (laughs) Yeah, I thanked him for that. You do need to know that I'm preaching this morning as a Presbyterian and Reformed pastor who is committed to an amillennial eschatology. It's going to be a day for big words. Eschatology simply means the study of end times. And I believe that the church has faced a series of antichrists from the time of the apostles and that this series of antichrists will eventually culminate in the appearance of the antichrist immediately before the return of Christ at the end of the age. This future appearance of the Antichrist reflects the fact that he is a false messiah who mimics the work of Christ and thus deceives many. And the appearance of the Antichrist is the final uh, precursor, harbinger, foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. And so with all that said, let's dive into our text for today, and let's let our theology, our beliefs, our faith, be informed by the Word of God. The Apostle Paul finally gets to the meat of the letter that he's written to this young church that's confused, that's persecuted, and to some degree is living in fear. And so the apostle starts by reminding them that he has warned them about false teaching. False teaching, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, today's passage is the heart of the letter. It's most likely the reason for the letter. It focuses on some errors in their thinking regarding the return of Christ. And just as this subject was a central issue back in 1 Thessalonians, it's a central issue in 2 Thessalonians as well. We can't minimize the importance that the second coming uh, had for Paul. It was such a key theme in these first letters of Paul. And these are among the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Now, these two topics here, Christ coming to us and our going to him, the unity of heaven and earth, were featured in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And at that time, the Thessalonians were troubled that the second coming hadn't come quickly enough. Some of their friends had died before it had taken place, and they wanted to know what was going to happen to them. 
Now it seems that their problem is that it has come too quickly. That some teachers were saying the day of the Lord has come and they thought they might have missed it. So they've gone from one extreme to the other between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And apparently this idea that the day of the Lord had already come has made the Thessalonians fear that Jesus coming in a gathering of his people to him were no longer legitimate or realistic expectations. And they were shaken. The text says they were shaken in a mindless panic. Uh, they were alarmed or frightened by this false claim that the day of the Lord had already come. And though the source of the confusion is unknown to Paul, he suggests a number of possibilities. He said a spirit could be uh, an alleged prophetic word, uh, perhaps, or a spoken word, possibly some teaching or a sermon they had heard. Or most troublesome, he says, a letter seeming to be from us. Paul seems to have suspected that a letter was forged uh, in his name and was now circulating in the church. And though some believe that Thessalonians were thinking in terms of a complex series of events that would lead to the second coming, Paul seems to assume here, as he does in 1 Corinthians, and as he does in Philippians, and as he does in 1 Thessalonians, that the arrival of the day of the Lord, and the second coming of Christ, and the gathering of the saints, commonly known as the rapture, occur at the same time, different aspects of a single event. That's important. Because a misinterpretation of verse 1 became the genesis of dispensational theology. Around 1830, a man named John Nelson Darby, a pastor in the Plymouth Brethren Church, and as far as we know, a godly man, introduced the idea that these two phrases, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, refer to two different events. Now, there is... Uh, scant information prior to 1830 that anyone anywhere in any Christian church ever thought this way. But he introduced this idea in that there is a rapture, uh, this gathering together to him, which occurs before the second coming of Christ. And this view of the rapture is Jesus coming for his own, followed perhaps much later by Jesus coming with his own. And that became the cornerstone of a school of thought called dispensationalism. It has that name because it splits all of time into different dispensations with a different means of salvation for each dispensation. We're in the church age dispensation now, they would argue. And so the way you get saved now is different than you know, Abraham and Moses and Jacob. Now, there might be some issues with Romans in there, but I'm not going to get into that. But it's a, this big system that's set forth in such places as the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible, the Dakes Bible. It's been updated in the Ryrie Study Bible. Some of you have heard of these. But it's been popularized in more recent years by Tim LaHaye's writings. Now, I'm always careful to uh, state my disagreement with Tim LaHaye and my, particularly my dislike for a series of books because the success of those books essentially built Patrick Henry College, uh, paid for all those buildings. So uh, the various people who work there said, be nice, you know. Um, 
He's on the board and is one of the major contributors uh, because of this. So uh, apparently there's some very good has come out of it as well. But there are no teaching elders in the PCA who hold to dispensationalism. They couldn't pass the ordination exams if they did. This view is predominantly found in independent Baptist brethren and Bible churches, and it's almost exclusively an American phenomenon. This view of theology is found virtually nowhere else in the world. However, much of its teachings has found its way into our Christian subculture, especially when dealing with end times events and the nation of Israel. And it all starts with a misreading of verse 1. And I find it highly ironic that not understanding a warning about false teaching has led to false teaching. Now let me caveat all this by saying I know lots of godly dispensationalists whose piety and love for Jesus would put me to shame. It's a different view of theology, but these people are still our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they should be treated as such. So Paul is telling this young church not to get caught up in false teaching. The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. And they'll know when it comes because it will be unmistakably preceded by true signs. True signs, verses 3 through 5. It says, no, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, there's two themes in these verses that demand our attention. The first is the rebellion. The Greek word for rebellion is apostasia, from which we get our English word apostasy. And that usually refers to a religious heresy. And on the basis of what follows, it's clear that Paul has already taught them about apostasy. The second phrase introduces the man of lawlessness, who is also the son of destruction, some versions translate this as the son of perdition. And this person is thus characterized as being opposed to God's law and therefore destined to perdition. Perdition simply means destruction. And the fact that he is to be revealed places him in direct contrast to Christ who will also be revealed. Now part of our problem here with this text is that we don't know what Paul assumes his readers already know. He's not giving them new information here. He's reminding them of what he taught them when he was with them. He says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So he personally told them something, and nobody wrote it down for us. And so we don't know, and our problem is that we don't know what he said then. And so we have to admit what we struggle to understand his readers would have clearly understood. And while this is new to us, and it appears nowhere else in the New Testament in exactly this form, this is just a reminder to them. And what Paul does for them and for us is to clarify the order of future events. The day of the Lord cannot be here already because that day will not come until 
two other things have happened. A certain event must take place and a certain person must appear. The event he calls the rebellion. And the person, the man of lawlessness, who obviously is the rebel. And although Paul does not call him the Antichrist, this is evidently who he is. That's a word that uh, the Apostle John uses to describe this man. And he'll be in the world before he emerges into public view. But only when the rebel is revealed will the rebellion break out. It seems these two things will happen together. We're not sure if uh, the man of lawlessness causes the rebellion or if the rebellion happens and reveals the man of lawlessness. It's just not clear. The Apostle John writes of the expectation of his coming in 1 John 2. He says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We're guessing there's about 40 years between Paul writing the Thessalonians and John writing his letters, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So some time period has gone by, and John feels the need to give this same kind of warning again. So therefore, we see the day of the Lord will be preceded by two events, neither of which has been fulfilled. The first prerequisite is a rebellion of humanity as a whole against God. Just as humanity in Adam has rejected God and has been plunged into ever greater depths of sin as a result, as we can see in Romans 1, so will move an all-out rebellion against God when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is revealed. Now, the second prerequisite is the man of lawlessness himself. He will personify hostility to God and to his revelation. This is the son of destruction, the one whose destiny is to be defeated and destroyed when Jesus returns. Now remember, the warning here is not to be deceived. Jesus himself gave a similar warning in Matthew 24. He said, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So we're being warned that someone who deceives is coming. Don't be deceived. Now, there's, there's this unique phrase in verse 4 about the man of lawlessness who, quote, takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This mention of the temple of God has led many to believe that Paul's talking about a literal temple in Jerusalem. It's led many to think this part of the prophecy was already fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. But I don't find that convincing because Paul never uses the word temple, never uses that term that way. The word temple is found nine other times in the New Testament outside of 2 Thessalonians. It's almost always used of Christ or the church. In all the other times Paul uses the word, he never refers to a literal temple in Jerusalem, either in the past or in the future. But he uses it to refer to believers who constitute the temple of God because they are in union with Christ through faith. Some of those verses, you have these in your uh, insert, 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Therefore, on the basis of how Paul uses the word temple in all his letters, we can see uh, that he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem, either the one destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD or some future temple yet to be rebuilt, but it uses the temple, as he always does, as a metaphor for the church, since the church is now indwelt by the Spirit of God in this present age. The apostle goes on to encourage them not to fear because the man of lawlessness is being held under real restraint. Verses 6 and 7, real restraint. It says, and you know what is restraining him now so he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, if there wasn't a controversy over the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him in verse 1, the day of the Lord in verse 2, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness in verse 3, the temple of God in verse 4, and Paul's previous instructions in verse 5, we now come to what is restraining him in verse 6. I love passages that are so clear that all Christians everywhere agree on what they mean. Sadly, this isn't one of them. Paul makes it clear that the Thessalonians already know what is restraining him and preventing the man of lawlessness from appearing on the scene. Obviously, the Thessalonians knew what Paul meant, but we must do our best to make an educated guess. And Dr. Craig, uh, Greg Beal, in his commentary, identifies seven different interpretations of this verse. Now, I'm not going to go through them all, as I said before, you know that I'm Presbyterian Reformed pastor, so I'm going to stick with the standard Reformed interpretation. Um, there are some Reformed people who have different views, but I think this is uh, clearly the majority view that most Reformed theologians hold, that what is restraining him is the providence of God, specifically presented through the preaching of the gospel as empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's holding back the power of lawlessness until the end. And this fits the context of the passage. We know that Paul's preaching was already having an impact upon the forces of darkness, which explains why Satan was trying to hinder him. It also fits with Jesus' words in Mark 13.10 that the gospel must first be preached to all nations before his return. And indeed, our Lord promised in Matthew 16.18 that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The apostle wants them to know that restraining such evil until the proper time, that God is restraining such evil uh, until the proper time, which is the time of final judgment. And therefore, the Thessalonians shouldn't be taken in by such false teaching as they were hearing. Meanwhile, even during this period of restraint and before the lawless one is revealed, we're told that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
another obviously clear and convincing text. Um, there's just lots of things that Christians just can't seem to come to one mind about in this chapter. Uh, you know I use the uh, ESV, um, the, the excellent superior version. Um, I know some of you have the NIV, the not inspired version. Um, The NIV totally messes up this verse. It translates the Greek word mysterion, which is translated as mystery, they translate it as secret power. And it's just a bad translation. They've added a word. And the, the word is mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. It means we don't fully see it and we don't fully understand it. And in fact, this form of lawlessness seems illogical and irrational to us. Dr. John R.W. Stott says we detect its subversive influence around us today, just in how the world lives and functions and operates. He says we can detect it if we're careful. We can look and see it in the atheistic stance of secular humanism, in the totalitarian tendencies of extreme ideologies, in the materialism of a consumer society which puts things in the place of God, and in theologies which proclaim the end of moral absolutes, and in the social permissiveness which cheapens the sanctity of human life, sex, marriage, and family, all of which God created or instituted. And were it not for some remaining restraints, if the providence of God was not at work preserving a measure of justice, freedom, order, and decency, these things would break out much more than they already have. But if you read the paper like I do, it seems that they are seemingly getting worse. But one day they will break out totally uncontrolled. And for when the restraint is removed, then this mysterious subversion will become open rebellion under the unscrupulous leadership of the man of lawlessness. However, when that day comes, we know it will soon be followed by the return of the king and his triumphant revelation. Verses 8 through 12, triumphant revelation. Before we get into these verses, I know that not everybody agrees with me. I think I'm in the mainstream of the PCA, but there are lots of other godly people who don't view this the way I do, but I'm the preacher, so this is what you're getting. This is the best I can do with this text. And I'm comforted to know there's people smarter than me that are, you know, on my side. So, But we're at Trump, triumphant revelation, uh, verses 8 through 12, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all who, excuse me, all who may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here we're told for the third time that the lawless one will be revealed. Paul is using language that seems to be deliberately pointing out that this lawless one is a counterfeit redeemer with a counterfeit revealing mocking the true Redeemer and the 
true revelation of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And therefore, the scene depicted by Paul is one in which the man of lawlessness who mimics Christ deceives people within the believing community, the church, through verse 9, he says, the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And because of that deception, we find then in verses 10 through 12, we have this portrayal of this pathetic progression of sin and evil within the human heart. First is the rejection of the love of truth, which comes from giving in to this deception of unrighteousness, and how deceptive and appealing unrighteousness can be. I mean, think about it. The ancient story of the uh, temptation in Genesis still rings so true. The serpent is attractive. The appeals are enticing. They offer wisdom and goodness and life. The tempter is not so dumb as to try to tempt us with offers of ignorance and evil and death. And the appeal of sin is it seems to offer wonderful things. And the rejection of the, the love of truth progresses readily to delusion and believing the lie. Remember, Satan is the, the liar and father of lies. And how easily we get to believing that evil is good that darkness is light, that might makes right and hate is love. And believing the lie is the final stage in the triumph of evil. It is with great importance that we have to observe the opposite of believing the truth here at the end of our text is pleasure in unrighteousness. It's because truth has moral implications and makes moral demands. Evil, not error, is the root problem. The whole process is grimly logical. First, they take pleasure in unrighteousness, or as one version has it, they make sinfulness their deliberate choice. Secondly, they refuse to believe and love the truth. It's impossible to love evil and the truth simultaneously. Thirdly, Satan uh, comes in and deceives them. Fourthly, God himself sends them a strong delusion, giving them over to the lie they have chosen. And finally, they are condemned and they perish. This is an extremely solemn, sobering passage. It tells us that the downward, slippery path begins with a love for evil, with a love for sin, with taking pleasure in unrighteousness. And it leads successive, successively through a rejection of truth, the deception of the devil, the judicial hardening by God, and final condemnation. And these are the dynamics which lie behind the final rebellion. And the only way to be protected from being deceived is to love the truth. The condemnation of God is seen as just consequence of a choice to reject the truth and to find pleasure in unrighteousness. And we're back again to the reality that our choices, our behavior, our lives, our thoughts have significance. In the deepest sense, this life is the arena in which we either follow the way of God or we follow the way of the man of lawlessness. And for those who think this whole following Christ thing is unclear, remember that not to follow the way of God is to follow the way of the lawless one. And sometimes the way of compromise or procrastination is simply a rejection of the truth. Now, in Paul's discussion of the lawless one, there seems to be a loud echo coming from Daniel 11 and 12. Remember, we went through Daniel this spring. As I'm sure you remember, the prophet Daniel foresaw a time in the future 
when the daily sacrifice would cease and God's temple would be desecrated, which happened at least twice in 167 B.C. and then again in 70 A.D. But he also speaks of a final enemy of God who both deceives the people of God and causes them to forsake the covenant, to uh, break the covenant, which is rebellion against God or apostasy. And I think Daniel's uh, prophecy is clearly in Paul's mind when he speaks of the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. It seems that both Daniel and Paul are assigning this particular figure to the time of the end. So when Paul is warning the Thessalonians of someone to come who, in verse 4, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, Paul's talking about an end times individual who will commit this heinous act in Christ's church, not in the Jerusalem temple, either past or future. Therefore, this great apostasy, this rebellion, will occur in Christ's church in connection with the revealing of this false Christ, this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, who will exalt himself over God and demand to be worshipped. And this may indicate that the series of antichrists described by the Apostle John in 1 John 2 will give way to the antichrist once God's restraint is lifted. And that means the lifting of the restraint has for its goal not merely the revealing of the man of lawlessness, but the final judgment upon all the forces of evil. And this, again, is evidence, I think strong evidence, that the events of 70 A.D. do not fulfill this prophecy. It becomes stronger, we realize Paul is actually quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from a text in which Yahweh, the mighty warrior, is said to judge the whole earth, Isaiah 11.4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The man of lawlessness will be destroyed by the glory of the coming of the Lord. And Jesus is that mighty warrior of whom Isaiah spoke. And when his glory is revealed, it will judge the earth. This event, the revealing, the destruction of the man of lawlessness, is tied to the second coming of Christ. Uh, I think clearly at the end of our passage where it says, Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. God's judgment comes upon all those who've embraced his enemy through the form of a powerful delusion so that all who are taken in by the man of lawlessness are objects of final judgment. Divine condemnation is the ultimate fate of those who are already perishing. I think the preterists, those who believe it's all been fulfilled, are wrong when they assert that all of this has already happened. I think the dispensationalists are wrong when they assert that it will only happen in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. No, Paul's man of sin presides over an end times apostasy in Christ's church. He's the culmination of that series of antichrists already plaguing the apostolic church both then and now, and his power is presently, presently being restrained by the preaching of the gospel until such time as God lifts his supernatural restraint and the man of lawlessness is finally revealed. And when that day comes, the second coming of Christ will not be far along. 
However, since no one knows the day the Lord will return, Matthew 24, 36 tells us, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And his coming must be preceded by certain signs, such as the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Again, Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. It would include the revealing of the lawlessness lawless one, then Christians must always be ready, and I don't think we should be preoccupied with setting dates. In this warning, Paul is clearly echoing the teachings of Jesus. And these early Christians, these believers in this Thessalonian church, lived with this distinct and pronounced eschatological tension, an end times tension. The Lord has died, the Lord has risen, the Lord has ascended, the already, but the Lord will come again, the not yet. This tension is clearly taught, I think, by both Jesus and Paul, and it prevents us from date-setting and idleness. Now, it's easy to look back at the Thessalonian church and think, you know, they really weren't all that sharp. I mean, Paul's already taught them on this subject. And he wrote about it to other churches, as did the Apostle John. But before we get too confident in ourselves and in our church, we have to remind ourselves there are numerous false teachings sprouting up in the churches today, all over the world, but even in America, right here in Loudoun County, there are churches teaching false gospels. And I think when there is less of a focus on the content of the Bible in Christian education, whether in Sunday school or in seminary, and everything in between, then the church becomes the fertile ground for the seed of false teaching to be planted. And the lesson to be learned is that the contemporary church, like the early church, is plagued with deceptive teachings, I think now more than ever. And so we should take this warning uh, personally to ourselves, to our day, to our time, and to our church. Now, back in 1994, uh, Michael Novak, who's a, a scholar and a journalist, um, he received the 24th Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. And uh, when he received that prize, he addressed the assembly uh, gathered to award it to him at Westminster Abbey with a message that he entitled, Awakening from Nihilism. Nihilism is the view that everything's futile. It's a little more complicated than that, but basically, um, you know, summarize it, life stinks, everything's futile, nothing really matters, do what you want. And Michael Novak gave a scathing attack on the horrific effects of relativism in the 20th century. And of all the lessons that can be learned over the past hundred years, he says the first one is this, truth matters. Truth matters. His assessment of the fundamental problem today says, and I quote, one principle that today's intellectuals most passionately disseminate is vulgar relativism. Nihilism with a happy face. For them, it is certain that there is no truth, only opinion, my opinion, your opinion. They abandon the defense of the intellect those who surrender the domain of the intellect make straight the road to fascism. Totalitarianism is the will to power unchecked by any regard for truth. 
To surrender the claims of truth upon humans is to surrender earth to thugs. Vulgar relativism is an invisible gas, odorless, deadly, that's polluting every free society on earth. It's a gas that attacks the central nervous system of moral striving. They say there is no such thing as truth, and they even teach it to our little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are people. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. And Dr. Novak ends with, those who speak in this way prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. When you come to the Bible with those words ringing in your ears, it's not surprising or oppressive, but sobering and thrilling to find in the Bible that truth matters. That truth is central. Why? For the simple reason that God is central. And God is the ground of all truth. And if what's going to keep us from being deceived is the love for the truth, and if what uh, people who are deceived is because they don't believe the truth, then obviously there's something important here about believing and loving the truth. In your inserts, I give you 10 reasons to love the church. I didn't think these up. I got them from Dr. John Piper. But I think they're valid. And so I've listed them there for you in your insert. 10 reasons to love the truth. One, biblical truth saves. 1 Timothy 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Two, biblical truth frees from Satan. Biblical truth frees from Satan, 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Three, biblical and truth, biblical truth imparts grace and peace. Second Peter 1, 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And four, biblical truth sanctifies, makes us holy. John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Biblical truth serves love. Philippians 1.9 is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Biblical truth protect, protects from error. Ephesians 4. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no, no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Seven, biblical truth is the hope of heaven. We get to see Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Biblical truth will be resisted by some. We know that, 2 Timothy 4.3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves 
teachers to suit their own passions. Biblical truth rightly handled is approved by God. Read in 2 Timothy 2 again, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then finally, biblical truth continue to grow in it. Quote the passage that is the theme verse for this church, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. Now I pray that the effect of these biblical words will be a strong conviction that there is such a thing as truth in a world filled with vulgar relativism. And that the Bible itself is the all-decisive word of the one who is the truth. And if that conviction would take root and spread, we would not be among the number who prepare the jails of the 21st century. We would, in fact, be the true liberators, as Jesus said in John 8, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Consistently, Paul concludes his teaching sections on this subject with an admonition to use the doctrine of the second coming of Christ to comfort one another, to edify and build up the church, to strengthen our resolve to be faithful in our service to Christ and in our love to one another. To be sure, the second coming of Christ may well strike fear into the hearts of unbelievers, but it is to be a source of comfort and strength for us who are in Him. We are called to fidelity, not to forecasting to steady perseverance as we bear witness to our unswerving faith in the hope of his coming. Loyalty to the apostolic teaching permanently enshrined in the New Testament is still the test of truth and the shield against error. It was then, it is now, because truth matters. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.